Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Nawaz. On the news hour tonight. Nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program. President Biden says the three objects shot down over North America were likely linked to private companies or scientific research, not foreign surveillance. Earthquake devastation puts Turkey's president under scrutiny for failing to enforce construction standards that could have saved lives. And in the aftermath of the Ohio train derailment, residents grow increasingly frustrated, saying they aren't getting answers about their risk of toxic exposure. Good evening and welcome to the News Hour. President Biden today gave his most detailed assessment yet of the Chinese spy balloon and other objects that have crossed into U.S. airspace. Addressing the country today, President Biden sought to calm concerns about three unidentified objects and a Chinese spy balloon shot down over the U.S. and Canada. The president made no apologies for ordering the takedown of these objects. Make no mistake. If any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down. The president's remarks came after days of mounting pressure from lawmakers in both parties. Following all of this closely is our White House correspondent, Laura Barone-Lopez. Laura, good to see you. Good to see you. So there's been a lot of questions about when or if the president would come out and address publicly these, uh, these shooting down of these objects. You were there when he made his remarks. What did we learn? So the president talked about these three unidentified objects very specifically that were shot down in the last week over the course of three days starting on February 10th. And so those three objects were shot down starting uh, uh, over the waters uh, of over the coast of Alaska, excuse me, and then Yukon Territory in Canada, and then over Lake Huron off the coast of Michigan. The president in addition to talking about these three objects, provided some of the clearest details about them and what type of entities officials believe were responsible for these objects. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. President Biden also said that the U.S. military and Canadian military are working to try to get the debris out of the ocean, the lake, the Yukon Territory, but ultimately weather is actually proving uh, that recovery effort to be pretty difficult. So these objects were shot down on the 10th, 11th, and 12th, as you noted, but it was that shooting down of the Chinese spy balloon back on February 4th, right, after mm -hmm. um, off the coast of South Carolina that triggered all of this. What is the latest intelligence on that? What do we know? So according to recent reports, administration officials believe that that spy balloon was intended to surveil military bases over Guam and over Hawaii. But here's what we ultimately know about that flight path. It started in Hanan, and then again, it was intended to fly over Guam and Hawaii, but was it took a turn and it was instead directed towards Alaska and then over the continental United States before it was ultimately shot down off the coast of South Carolina on February 4th. And despite the fact that Chinese uh, officials refused to take a call from Secretary of Defense Austin, uh, President Biden said today that he and his team are trying to keep as many channels open with ch the Chinese and that he is hopeful and expected to talk to Chinese President Xi soon. So one of the questions we've seen put to U.S. officials again and again is, is there a plan? What's the policy now for any future flying objects that could be deemed a threat? Does the president have a plan? The president directed his national security advisor to come up with this all-of-government approach, establish some parameters. And so today, he really did give some of the clearest points of this plan, which is specifically for unmanned objects in U.S. airspace. It would establish better inventory for these unmanned objects, improve capacity to detect these unmanned objects, update regulations for launching and maintaining them, as well as the Secretary of State is going to work to establish some common global standards. And the president said that he is going continuing to get daily updates on all of the intel that is being gathered on these objects and that he will continue to share it with Congress. Improving capacity to detect, so increased vigilance, basically, mm -hmm. of U.S. airspace. There has to be a cost associated <laughs> with all of that. What do we know? So it, it's hard necessarily to get the entire cost of this. but And some say that this is already budgeted into the ultimate cost because these are training exercises or, or these uh, fighter jets are already ready to respond to real world events. But 
the costs, we did get some of the cost data from the Air Force and from the GAO about what it takes to fly these fighter jets. So the cost per flying hour of an F-22 is $85,000 per hour. The cost per flying hour of an F-35 is $40,000. Uh, and each missile that is fired to shoot down these objects costs over $400,000, as well as the tanker aircraft, which has been used in a number of these situations, costs $25,000 to $30,000 an hour, depending on which tanker they use. Ultimately, Omna, it costs uh, a decent amount of money to shoot down all of these objects that have been found in U.S. airspace. A decent amount, to say the least. Our White House correspondent, Laura Barone-Lopez, thank you. Thank you. In the day's other headlines, a special grand jury in Georgia has concluded one or more witnesses lied under oath about efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. The panel's probe focused on former President Trump and his allies. The perjury allegations are part of a final report released today. The grand jurors urged prosecutors to, quote, seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling. The report stayed silent on who might have lied. Police in East Lansing, Michigan, shed a little more light today on the shootings that killed three students at Michigan State University. They said the gunman, Anthony McRae, had two 9-millimeter handguns that were purchased legally but not registered. They also found a note on McRae Monday night when he killed himself several hours after the campus attacks. It appears, based on the content of the note, that he felt that he was slighted in some way by people or businesses. Um, did a mental health issue amplify that, or was it a component of that? We're not sure at this point. Four students remain in critical condition today. A fifth has been upgraded to stable. A suburban Chicago man pleaded not guilty today to reckless conduct after his son allegedly killed seven people at a Fourth of July parade. Dozens of spectators were wounded in the attack last year in Highland Park. Robert Cremo III has been charged with the shootings. Prosecutors say his father, Robert Cremo Jr., helped him to get a gun license in 2019, even though he had allegedly threatened violence. Also today, a Chinese immigrant farm worker pleaded not guilty to killing seven co-workers in Half Moon Bay, California, last month. Authorities in Memphis have suspended two sheriff's deputies for five days for turning off their body cameras at the scene of Tyree Nichols' deadly arrest. A statement issued last night said the deputies violated multiple regulations. Nichols died after being beaten by five Memphis police officers. In Ukraine, Russia rained a new barrage of missiles today as the war's one-year anniversary nears. Ukrainian officials said more missiles got through, partly because the attackers used balloons with reflectors to confuse radar. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces in the east again faced heavy ground attacks around Bakhmut. They said the Russians don't seem to care about casualties. They have a lot of manpower. They're, they're sending a lot of troops. I don't think that's sustainable for them to keep attacking this way. They're just, they're, they're places where th their bodies are just piled up. There's, there, there's a trench where they just don't evacuate. They're wounded, they were killed. The head of a Russian mercenary group leading the Bakhmut assault acknowledged heavy losses, but he said his fighters will capture the city by April. China now says it has decisively beaten the COVID pandemic and is transitioning to a new stage. Beijing announced today that more than 200 million people were diagnosed and treated. It said 800,000 of the sickest patients have recovered. The outbreak spread rapidly after strict containment measures were dropped in November. Back in this country, Kentucky's Supreme Court allowed a near-total ban on abortions to stand today. The justices heard challenges to two laws that sharply limit abortions in the state. In the end, they ruled on narrow legal grounds and sent the case back to a lower court. President Biden's doctors say he is healthy and fit to fulfill his duties after a routine medical checkup today. It drew more than usual attention, as Mr. Biden is already the oldest president in history at 80 and is considering a run for re-election. The White House press secretary dismissed concerns that he might not be up to the job. The president always says this, which is watch him. And if you watch him, you'll see that he has a grueling schedule that he keeps up with, that sometimes some of us are not able to keep up with.
In recent polls, majorities of Americans, including most Democrats, have said Mr. Biden should not run again, given his age. On Wall Street, stocks sank on news that inflation at the wholesale level slowed less than expected in January. Major indices dropped one and a quarter to 1.8 percent. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 431 points to close at 33,696. The Nasdaq fell 214 points. The S&P 500 was down 57. And former baseball and broadcasting star Tim McCarver has died. He was an all-star catcher who won two World Series titles with the St. Louis Cardinals in the 1960s. Later, he went on to become a Hall of Fame baseball broadcaster after his playing days ended. Tim McCarver was 81 years old. Still to come on the News Hour, people living with the effects of long COVID detail how the disease has changed their lives. As Senator Fetterman seeks help for depression, we explore the challenge of dealing with mental illness while in the public eye. A new book details the struggle of black soldiers during World War II and much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. The death toll in the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has crossed 41,000. As hope of finding any survivors fades, the focus is shifting from rescue to reconstruction. In Turkey, thousands of buildings have been reduced to rubble. But the widespread damage in towns and cities is not the only permanent scar left on the landscape. Here's a report now from a village in southern Turkey where the sheer destructive power of this earthquake is clear. Since the earthquake struck southern Turkey in the early hours of Monday morning last week, most of the focus, obviously, has been on the consequences for human beings. Far less attention has been on the consequences for the earth itself. But here in the farmland outside Antakya, there is a very good example of that. This is the world's newest valley. During that awful night, as they cowered in their homes, the locals knew that something cataclysmic had happened. But imagine their surprise when they first saw this chasm. We went to the bottom of it for the perspective from down there. But actually, the best way to illustrate what we're talking about here is from above. The local people said that at the time they thought it was an air raid. The sound of explosions created by cracking rock, the flashes by the sparks that flew as the Earth's crust was torn apart. It used to be a flat field. I would ride my motorbike on it, said this boy. It was all an olive grove, which is now bisected by a gorge that in places is the width of a football field. The rift is so deep that a 13-story building could fit in it. This boy said that just after first light that morning, they came out here and found this. They were terrified and started crying. We thought we had witnessed something that's out of this world. Eventually, the cities and towns will be clear of rubble. But this rupture, shaky ground permitting, will endure as a reminder of the power of the quake, the power of 7.8. Just astonishing. That was John Irvine of Independent Television News. Turkey's disastrous earthquake has also exposed President Erdogan's political fault lines. Anger, recriminations, and demands for accountability are echoing across Turkey, just three months ahead of a scheduled election. To discuss this, we turn to Gonul Tol, founding director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey program and author of the book Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria. Gonul, welcome to the news hour, and thank you for joining us. We, we invited you here because of your professional credentials, but on a personal note, I know you were in Turkey when the earthquake hit. You lost family that night. We are so very sorry for your loss. These numbers are staggering, though. Over 41,000 
dead. Help us just understand what people on the ground are feeling right now. There is a lot of anger uh, on the ground over the government's slow response. Uh, it was not only slow, but it was uh, very disorganized too. And the narrative on the ground uh, from the victims is that Erdogan's government has not prepared the country for the earthquakes and did things that paved the way for last week's tragedy. Uh, the practice of gov uh, granting government infrastructure projects to cronies who cut corners on safety played an important role in the high uh, death toll. And another problematic policy enacted by, by Erdogan government was granting amnesties to unsafe buildings. Uh, and according to state agencies, uh, there are millions of almost more than half of uh, all the buildings in the country uh, received these uh, amnesties. So people understand that. And compounding the problems for, for Erdogan's government is the fact that uh, state agencies, rescue workers were not there on time. And when they finally arrived, uh, they, they couldn't do, they did not want to do uh, enough to help the victims. And that really does frustrated a lot of people. Help us understand a little bit about the granting of these amnesties and, and President Erdogan's role in that, because the country did undergo a massive construction boom in recent years. What was behind that and what exactly was President Erdogan's role in allowing some of those construction companies to get around the enforcement standards? That's right. Erdogan's government rode high on an, uh, on a construction boom uh, starting from, from uh, early years in, in his tenure. And he started almost immediately after coming to power, he stra started granting these government contracts to a handful of cronies uh, that had little regard for environmental concerns or safety regulations. And he granted those contracts without competitive tenders or any uh, regulatory oversight. So I think that really compounded uh, the problem. And on top of that, he collected uh, large sums of money in earthquake tax. And those taxes were meant to build stronger buildings. And apparently, uh, from what we've seen uh, from last week, uh, he has not built strong enough, uh, enough buildings. You know, the Turkish government says that they've ordered over 100 people detained that they say were responsible for those many buildings collapsing. Is that the accountability you want to see here? Not really, because I think these are small private contractors. Uh, I think a little over 100 have been arrested. But I think the bigger problem here is uh, the, the five largest companies in the country, uh, and, and uh, they are very close uh, associates, personal friends of Erdogan, and they have uh, become very rich uh, because of these government uh, tenders. And I doubt they will be held accountable. One of them is called Cengiz Holding. He's one of the richest men in the country, a personal friend of Erdogan, and he has received, according to uh, World Bank reports, uh, $42.1 billion in tenders uh, since Erdogan came to power. Uh, so those people, I doubt, uh, will be held accountable. And actually, on the contrary, last night, uh, there was a government-led campaign to fundraise for the victims, and Cengiz Holding uh, was there uh, donating uh, over uh, $160 million. And that happened right after uh, President Erdogan's uh, government uh, gave Cengiz Holding incentives. So even that effort from last night was an effort from, from Erdogan government to provide legitimacy to, to those companies. So, Konal, the elections are slated for May, right? President Erdogan has declared a three-month state of emergency that will go right up until those scheduled elections. Do you believe they should be postponed? Could they be postponed? No, I think they have to be held on time. According to the Constitution, uh, Turkey cannot hold elections later than June. Uh, but Erdogan tested the waters uh, in the last few days. Uh, one of his close associates suggested that Turkey should not hold elections soon. And the opposition parties responded strongly, saying that it was unconstitutional for Turkey to hold elections uh, after June, June 18th. Uh, so I think Erdogan will probably keep pushing for a later date in the hopes that he could use that extra time to rebuild those cities probably with financial, international financial aid, and use the media under his control to shift the narrative in his favor. That is Gonal Tol, founding director of the Middle East Institute's 
Turkey program joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now to the continuing concerns over a major chemical spill in eastern Ohio caused by a train derailment. Another train derailed outside Detroit today. Early reports found that one of the cars that went off the tracks did have hazardous materials, but chemicals did not leak out. But in Ohio, anger and anxiety are running high nearly two weeks after the incident there. Frustration, fear, and unanswered questions Wednesday night in East Palestine, Ohio. I think most of the residents here are concerned that they're going to sweep this under the rug. You know, we've got dead fish in the streams. We, there's a lot of reports of pets and animals dying. And, you know, we just want to make sure that we're taken care of here. Residents worried about the danger of returning to their homes, given the potential long-term effects of toxic chemicals in the air, soil, and water following that fiery train derailment. That's with evacuation orders lifted last week. No one was injured in the derailment, but as the cleanup continues, there are more questions about the chemicals released into the environment, including vinyl chloride, linked to cancer, and known to cause dizziness, headaches, and other short-term symptoms that residents have complained about. Many now worried about the effect on the community's children. My grandkids are only six months and two years old, so I was very concerned with them growing up in this town, what they'll have to endure. State officials insist that tests done by the EPA and others show the air is safe to breathe and the water is safe to drink. But some residents say they aren't convinced. I honestly feel that the police department, the fire department, all the first responders, they don't have the answers to give us because I don't think they know. Good afternoon, everybody. Earlier this week, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine was asked if he would feel comfortable returning to his home if he lived near the site of the derailment. I think that I would be drinking the bottled water. I would be alert and, and concerned, but uh, I think I would probably be back in my house. Notably missing from last night's community meeting, the company that owns the trains that derailed, Norfolk Southern. The company telling PBS NewsHour in a statement, Unfortunately, after consulting with community leaders, we have become increasingly concerned about the growing physical threat to our employees. The company says it's creating a $1 million charitable fund for the community and has paid more than $1 million in relief so far. Today, EPA Administrator Michael Regan visited the community. We are absolutely going to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, and I can promise you that. At least five lawsuits have been filed against Norfolk Southern, including a class action suit by some East Palestine residents. To help us understand more about the potential risks residents of East Palestine could face, I'm joined by Peter DiCarlo, Associate Professor of Environmental Health and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you for being with us. And Peter DiCarlo, if you lived in East Palestine, what would you need to hear? What would you need to see from officials in order to feel safe living there? So I, I think ultimately, given the public uh, information available, uh, I wouldn't feel comfortable moving back quite yet. And, and what I'd need to see is evidence that the there are no more emissions coming from the accident site and that the in side of my home was was safe to, to be in. Um, and so I, I haven't seen data that suggests that either of those things are true yet. And for me, with two small children, I, I would certainly not um, want to move back at this point. The EPA is not providing that data, or the data that you're seeing does not suggest that it's safe? So the EPA is providing monitoring and stationary sampling data. Um, the monitoring data is from these handheld monitors that are really not designed to measure outside air quality. Um, I believe these are also the instruments they're using um, to screen people's homes um, and, and let people know that it's safe to move back. Uh, as an atmospheric measurement uh, person, I, I would not feel comfortable with, with that level of screening. I would want more information. Uh, I'd want to know what chemicals were present. And so that, by the EPA's definition, would require air sampling, which means you take air into a stainless steel container, you take that back to a lab, and you do much more detailed measurements and characterization of what chemicals are present and at what concentrations. And that's the type of information that's needed to, to know that the air is safe. 
Um, there's also surfaces in the home where some of the plume from the large fire that we all saw uh, could have deposited. And, and so we don't know what chemicals are made uh, exactly when you burn something like vinyl chloride. Uh, we know that it's no longer vinyl chloride. It's going to be a mixture of a whole host of different potentially toxic chemicals. And so if those accumulate on surfaces in your home, that becomes another thing to, to worry about. We spend most of our lives indoors and, and most of it in our homes. And so making sure that that's a safe environment to go back to, especially if there are um, vulnerable populations involved, that's young children, elderly, people with pre-existing health conditions, making sure that that home environment is safe um, and, and really confirming that it's safe is, is key uh, if I were to move back. A question about that, because we heard from a grandmother in our report, her grandkids are six months old and two years old. What are some of the special safety considerations for children? I mean, I, I have two young boys, um, eight and six, and uh, when they were that age, if it was on the floor, if it was a toy, it was in their mouth, um, I'd be really concerned about indoor surfaces and potential exposures that could happen um, in that case. And, and so especially with young children who are touching everything, we know that kids are more vulnerable to um, chemical exposures. So extra careful, especially when, when young children are involved, because they, there's just so many more ways that they, these types of chemicals can get into their bodies. The release of these chemicals in East Palestine caused the deaths of 3,500 fish. Some residents have reported headaches and rashes in the days since the derailment. The EPA is telling people that it's safe to return to their homes, but there are people in East Palestine who wonder how both things can be true. How on the one hand, they're being told it's safe, and yet on the other hand, people are experiencing physical symptoms. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, our noses are not detailed chemical information instruments to measure air quality, but they are detectors for measuring something's not right. And so when people are reporting smells, you know that, that there are still chemicals that are present in that environment um, that were not there before. And so it's important to really characterize what chemicals are present. Um, certainly early on in the accident, and during the uh, burn of the uh, train car contents, you probably have the worst potential for exposure, but that doesn't mean there aren't residual exposures to some of these chemicals that are continuing to happen. So again, it's really important to characterize in a, in a very detailed and systematic way what's in the air and what's potentially, especially in the indoor environment, on surfaces. What about the long-term impact? How long might it take to fully understand the full uh, picture of consequences here? I mean, I think that's a, that's a really difficult question to answer because the data that's publicly available at this point really doesn't tell me, um, as a measurement scientist, what's still going on. I really need to understand, are there continuing emissions? Um, and if without the data uh, to tell us what's there and what continues to be emitted, if things continue to be emitted, uh, we don't really know. We can't put a timeline on any of this. And so fundamentally, we need the measurement data to understand exposure and to understand how long uh, potentially this could last. Peter DiCarlo with Johns Hopkins University, thanks for your time and for your insights. Thank you. Last fall, President Biden said the pandemic was over. And judging by how most Americans are living their lives, they agree. That's even though this virus is still killing about 2,000 Americans every single week. As William Brangham reports, a much broader impact is being borne by the untold millions who survived their infection but now suffer from the troubling chronic condition of long COVID. The specter of long COVID, with its mysterious cause, no obvious cure, and an unknown duration, haunts millions of people. In a moment, we'll hear from someone who treats this puzzling condition. But first, let's hear from some of those who are suffering with it. One day I woke up and I felt like I had the flu. Like I just had body aches and, you know, congestion and everything. And it wasn't too bad. It just, it kind of felt like a flu that I've had before. So I didn't think anything of it. And then, um, you know, as the weeks went by, I started to notice like the symptoms were not going away. Physically, long COVID has absolutely just ruined my life. I mean, it really has. There's no other way to say that. Um, many days I still can't even get out of bed. Um, 
I now have chronic migraines. I can't walk very far at all without running out of breath. Um, I'm constantly getting dizzy. I've, I'm constantly having to go to the ER because I've fallen somewhere. My joints hurt all the time, all the time. That's something that people don't realize is just how much pain is involved in long COVID. After having COVID the first time and recovering fine, I assumed that having it again wouldn't be a problem because I had been okay during my first infection and I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, now I have these debilitating symptoms um, and there's no treatment and no cure for it uh, and doctors don't know what to do with you. I worked through it the first um, year and a half. It was just brutal. The only thing I could do was work and then the rest of the day I was just you know pretty much out cold and then I got um, reinfected in September of 2021 with Delta. And for most of last year, I just couldn't get off the couch. I even started to have um, heart attack symptoms, but um, unfortunately nothing happened to me, but I did end up going to the ER, you know, because I was really scared. I didn't know what was going on. I'd never experienced any of these symptoms before ever in my life. And um, basically my experience was that every time I would go to doctors, or to the hospital, they would just tell me, oh, no, you're fine. I've tried dozens of medications. I've tried dozens of therapies. And, you know, I went through, you know, dozens of doctors. I finally have a great team of doctors who who believe me and, and uh, are doing everything they can to treat me. But I'm still, um, you know, completely housebound. All my testing I've had shows that there's no damage or anything like that, even though I have shortness of breath and chest pain pretty much every day. Um, and so that's probably like one of the most frustrating parts is that doctors just don't know what to do with you. Financially, this has been devastating. Um, my husband is now my full-time caretaker. Uh, he can't really leave me alone for very long amounts of time because I tend to fall. Um, so we, we don't have our business anymore. Um, if it was not for the help of friends and family and, and the community, we, we wouldn't be able to survive at all. You know, I am able to walk now, but I'm not able to do any exercise. Um, so, and even just the thought of getting a job, I wish I could get a job. I wish I could work, you know, I wish I could live a life like, you know, most other able-bodied people. I've ran out of short-term disability. I cannot work. I'm running out of money. And I, the social worker I just talked to said, don't even bother applying for long-term disability because you're gonna get denied. And so what, what are people in my position supposed to do? My friends and family have been very supportive and that's been very helpful, but to just kind of watch your life go down the drain is very depressing. People do not understand if you get long COVID, especially if it like debilitates you to the degree that it's done to me, you're, 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 you're done for. Like, it's, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no help coming your way. So that is just a small snapshot of the kinds of varied symptoms that people are dealing with right now. For more on this, we are joined by David Petrino. He's a neuroscientist and physical therapist, and he's director of rehabilitation innovation at the Mount Sinai Health System, and he joins us from his home in New York. David, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you heard those voices of people and what they are struggling with. Do those stories sound familiar to the kinds of people that you deal with every day? Yes, yeah, sadly, um, this is a very common story. This is what we're hearing in our clinic every day. Um, unfortunately, my team, uh, since the pandemic began, we've seen over 3,000 people with long COVID. And um, what I just heard is, is a very, very good representation of what we're dealing with every single day. In a recent commentary that you co-authored in The Lancet, you, you noted that, quote, there are more than 200 reported symptoms associated with long COVID affecting virtually every organ system. Given that, uh, are there proven treatments that help? And, and how do you go about helping people who are suffering from such a myriad of symptoms? It's a great question. And it's, it's a question that um, we, we're still working out as we go. Uh, the, the reality is long COVID is a subset of conditions. It, it, it's a number of different conditions that have been caused by an acute viral infection. And so 
we take a lot of care in our clinic to understand what subtype of long COVID we're looking at when we evaluate each patient. And based on those subtypes, we offer different treatments for symptom management. Because right now, although we're learning a little bit about how the body is responding to the viral infection, and hopefully that will lead us to some targeted therapies that we can apply, all we can do right now is symptom management. Uh, and we can do a good job of that. We can make people feel a lot better um, with the, the symptoms that they have, but we're not curing them. We're, we're getting them to a point where they may be a little more functional. They may be able to leave the house, but the underlying cause is still there with them. That is just such a distressing diagnosis to give to people. I know that the National Institutes of Health has a billion dollar project looking at, at research into this. What does the best research tell us as to why this is happening to people? Right now, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty about the underlying causes of long COVID. But what we know for sure is that long COVID is an organic disease. So we understand that the virus has really changed things within the body. Now, there are three or four different ways that the virus can change the body's physiology and start to lead into the symptoms that we're experiencing with long COVID. But what we understand very clearly is that this is not a psychological illness. This is not a psychosomatic illness. This is an illness that has been caused by the body responding to a previously unknown virus. The immune system has become very dysregulated as a result of the virus, and it's leading to these highly debilitating symptoms. I'm really optimistic that we have the potential to close in on some biomarkers and some therapies for people with long COVID, but we need much more attention to the problem. We need the public to understand that, that dying is not your only risk of, of serious life-changing effects from having an acute COVID infection. And we need the government to start supporting a lot more in the way of infection prevention so that my clinic, which you know is currently overwhelmed, doesn't become even more overwhelmed in the coming months and years. I have to imagine that in addition to all of the physical symptoms that people are going through, that there's got to be a great deal of just emotional distress and depression at all of the mysteries associated, as you're describing, plus this idea that much of the country seems to have moved on while they are still very much in the middle of all this. Many people with long COVID are experiencing such a, a, a traumatic transition uh, from previously being fully healthy, never having a, a, a serious medical condition in their entire lives, and transitioning suddenly to being completely debilitated, dependent on friends and family, as we heard in, in that last clip, for just basic survival, that is a very tough transition to have to make. And so uh, in our clinic, we try to do our best to make sure that in addition to care, in addition to research that's trying to underlie, uh, to, to treat the underlying causes of the illness, we're also doing our best to provide um, psychological support and social support with the understanding that this is not the underlying cause of what's going on, but the transition uh, from non-disabled to disabled is sometimes very challenging. All right, David Petrino at Mount Sinai Health, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman announced today that he is in the hospital after voluntarily seeking treatment for clinical depression. The senator is still recovering from a stroke last May. His office says he's often experienced depression, but that it became severe in recent weeks. Millions of Americans struggle with depression, but few politicians ever share their stories publicly. Jason Kander is one of those who has. He stepped away from his mayoral campaign in 2018 after acknowledging he'd struggled in silence with depression and PTSD for nearly a dozen years. Jason Kander, thank you so much for being with us. 
And you praised Senator Fetterman in a tweet today saying that his decision to be transparent in seeking help is awesome leadership. Tell me more about that, why the, the public acknowledgement is so important. Well, you know, look, so many of us tell ourselves stories. It doesn't matter whether you served in the military or whether you did. It doesn't matter. We tell ourselves stories about how whatever we're going through doesn't measure up and doesn't count, right? I mean, I can tell you that one of the benefits of having uh, been public about uh, my own mental health challenges is that I'm a very safe place for people to come and, and talk to somebody and, and say, here's what I've been going through. So what that affords me is the knowledge that like everybody is going through stuff. And at the same time, not everybody feels the license, the permission slip to actually deal with that stuff. And, and so whether you are, uh, you know, a, a person that people know, uh, like John Fetterman, or whether you're just somebody who the people in your office know, if you are transparent and public and open with people in your life or people who are, who know who you are, and you say, this is what I'm going through, this is what I'm do doing about it, uh, that is contagious in a good way. It causes people to feel that they can give themselves permission to get help, and that saves lives. You talked about the benefits that you experienced as a public figure navigating this issue. To be clear, your experience is not Senator Fetterman's experience. But what about the flip side of that? How did being in the public eye, how did that compound things, complicate things for you? Yeah. Um, well, for one thing, it I think for a long time kept me from going to the VA to get help uh, because I, I it was one of many factors that caused me to think I, you know, I well I'm a I'm a politician, so I can't be out here admitting this vulnerability. But eventually I did, and then there was an interesting aspect of it. Like, look, when you're going through something, every day is not terrible, right? Um, and in fact, when you're going to therapy gradually, a lot of the days start to be better than the day before. But what the public knows is the last thing that they heard or the last thing that they saw, which was you're going through this thing. So like you could be out at the grocery store and you're feeling pretty good that day. And then somebody takes it upon themselves, very well-intentioned, to be the person who convinces you, uh, you know, to feel better. And then they say something that's kind of awkward, but well-intentioned. And that, that can be a strange feeling to feel like everybody you meet is now seeing you through this lens of having you know this mental health issue that you've either been dealing with or at that point may have dealt with. And it kind of makes you feel like people see you as very fragile. And, and that's something that, look, I'm very confident that, that you know, Senator Fetterman, like most Americans that go to get treatment for um, this, just like any other ailment, any physical ailment, I, I'm sure uh, that that's gonna go very well and that he's gonna be back to feeling like himself. But what he will reckon with is when he meets new people or when people regard him, uh, there will be a period of time where they see him uh, through this lens and through this knowledge. Um, but he'll learn to navigate that, and he'll uh, probably, I, I would imagine, come to take pride in the idea that he can be sort of an example of, uh, of getting better, which encourages other people to go get help. More than 50% of Americans will be diagnosed with a, a mental illness over the course of their lifetime, according to the CDC. What lessons have you learned from your own journey that might help out others? Uh, I've learned a lot of lessons. I, I wrote a, a book about it, um, and uh, which I'm which I'm happy to plug. Um, but one of I think the most important lessons that I would share here um, is that it's not a contest. Uh, that whatever you've been through or haven't been through that have led you to the place where you need some help, it doesn't really matter how you got here. Um, one of the things I think is so important about what Senator Fetterman is doing here is that. Well, I got a lot of uh, praise for being public about it. Also, our society sort of gives guys like me permission, right? Like, I'm a combat veteran. There's a certain expectation now that somebody like me uh, might have this problem. And, and there's less judgment, I think, than somebody who is not in this very particular group that society seems to have given a, a special permission slip culturally to um, have a mental health problem. Uh, that they need to, to overcome. Um, and so somebody like Senator Fetterman doing this is really important because I can tell you that so many people come up to me all the time and they'll express something that they've been through or, or something and they'll say, but I didn't go to war or anything. And I'm always like, I don't, that doesn't matter. It's not relevant. What my brain experienced and what your brain experienced, 
they, my brain doesn't know what your brain experienced. So it really doesn't matter. Trauma is trauma. The Senator Fetterman, um, whether it's clinical depression that he's had for a long time, that is like any other uh, ailment that he needs to treat, or whether it is related to the trauma of, of having a stroke last year, or it's a mix of the two, fine. It doesn't matter. You don't need a permission slip. You don't need to justify it. If it's something that you struggle with, go and treat it. And, and the last thing I'd say about it is, um, you know, I, I think I've made a much greater impact on the world since uh, going to get help than I did prior to it. Mm. And I think that when I when I think about politicians who, and Senator Fetterman's not the only one now, um, who have announced that, you know, they've gone to get help for some sort of mental health issue. I, look, I think about the fact, like what you just said, over 50% of people have had these challenges. I think the number's probably higher than that. Look, if we're going to have people in leadership positions, whether in public office or in the corporate world or whatever, I would just rather they have dealt with their stuff because I live under the assumption that almost all of us have stuff. And and I'd rather have people in charge who have dealt with that stuff than people who are suppressing that stuff and not dealing with it. Jason Kander, thanks so much for the uh, thoughtful conversation. Appreciate you. Thank you, Jeff. Stories of American military service and heroism in World War II have been immortalized in books and movies for decades. Missing from most of those narratives, though, have been the crucial contributions of more than one million black Americans who served in the war. No longer, thanks to the book Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad, which gives a detailed look at the dual battle black service members waged, fighting fascism overseas and racism back home. I recently sat down with the author, Matthew Delmont, history professor at Dartmouth College, to learn more. Matthew Delmont, welcome to the News Hour, and thanks for joining us. Let's start with what brought you to this story in the first place. I mean, much of the narrative around black Americans' service in World War II is, is really limited. We all know about the trailblazing Tuskegee Airmen, but your research revealed service on a much broader level. Tell me a little bit about what you found. What I found in doing the research is that black Americans participated in every aspect of World War II. Even though the military was racially segregated during the war, black Americans were in the Army, Navy, they're eventually in the Marine Corps, and they participated in every theater of the war, in Europe, in the Pacific, even in the China, India, Burma theater. They helped to build roads, build bridges, load and unload ships, and fought in combat when given the opportunity. And so what I came away from with my research was that you really can't tell the history of World War II without talking about the contributions of black Americans. Did it surprise you to learn how widespread that service was and that it's not more widely known or taught? You know, it did. I'm a historian. I've taught about this topic for more than a decade. But once I actually got into the research, I realized how vast the story was. It goes far beyond just the Tuskegee Airmen or beyond Doris Miller, the black hero from Pearl Harbor. You literally can't talk about this history without talking about the contributions of black Americans. And what was so exciting for me in doing the research was that there's so many stories that are just fascinating that typically don't end up in our history textbooks and aren't the kind of things I've had the opportunity to teach before. And so the opportunity to write the book made me even more excited to bring these stories into the classroom and then more excited to share these stories with uh, general readers and audiences. One of the themes I found fascinating in the book is how black Americans identified the threat from fascism long before much of the rest of the nation did, how for many black Americans, the real start date for the war was well before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I think one of the important things when you look at World War II from the black perspective is the chronology of the war changes. If you looked at a black newspaper from the 1930s, you would see extensive coverage of the rise of fascism in Europe. And one of the reasons black Americans were able to recognize what a serious threat Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime posed was that they could see that Hitler was explicitly pointing to the Jim Crow laws in the U.S. South to help justify his treatment of Jews in Europe. And so 1933, 34, 35, you see coverage in the Chicago Defender and other black newspapers of Adolf Hitler in Germany. You see coverage of Italy and Benito Mussolini invading Ethiopia. And then later in the 30s, you see coverage of the Spanish Civil War and the rise of fascism there in Spain. All those things captivated the imaginations of black Americans. And so several years before Pearl Harbor, black Americans understood that fascism was already spreading across Europe and that something had to be done about it, because if not, it was going to become a worldwide problem. Many of those black Americans who chose to enlist and serve had to travel to the Jim Crow South for training at those military bases. What were the conditions like? What did you learn? That was some of the most difficult research I did. Uh, reading the recollections and the letters that these black soldiers wrote once they were stationed on these bases was, was troubling. 
These by and large were black soldiers from northern cities, places like Chicago, Cleveland, New York. They would get on trains and be sent to the south and then describe pulling in these small southern towns, having to pull down the shades on the train so that white townspeople wouldn't throw rocks at the trains because they were so upset about black soldiers being sent to these bases. They described being called racial epithets daily by their officers and by white enlisted men, and then violence, both on base and in the small towns from white sheriffs and police. Things got so bad that these soldiers were writing up to the NAACP, to people like Thurgood Marshall, the head lawyer for the NAACP, saying, we'll feel safer once we deploy to war in Europe or the Pacific than we feel on these military bases in Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. They literally described themselves as being at war here in the United States before they're ever even deployed to the war overseas. You did say one of the hardest parts about writing this book was reading some of those personal letters and their personal accounts, including what happened when they came back home after serving overseas. What did you find there? What's so troubling about the end of the war is that black veterans came back and they were treated with hostility and violence in many of the communities they returned to. One of the things I describe in the book is there were at least 12 black veterans who were murdered or attacked uh, immediately after they returned, some while still wearing their military uniforms. Uh, it was just horrific, the kind of violence that that was uh, enacted against black veterans. And the only inspiring thing we can take from that, though, is that black veterans came back and they immediately started fighting for civil rights. In the words of one veteran, they went from fighting in the European theater of operations to fighting in the Southern theater of operations. And so one of the big picture stories that the book tries to show is that the war didn't end for black Americans in 1945. They were committed to helping to win the war militarily, but once that was over, they came home and immediately started fighting for freedom and democracy here in the United States. And so there was a real continuity between black veterans fighting during the war and then coming home and fighting another war for freedom and democracy here in the U.S. You know, it strikes me that you and I are speaking at a time when our own American history, in particular, the history of racism in America and anti-black policies in America, is part of a larger political debate, right? How we talk about it, if we talk about it. I'm curious how you, as a professor of history, having written this book, how do you view this whole conversation right now? Well, it's, it's troubling as a professional historian to see some of the, the debates and the, the attacks on the teaching of history that are going on all across the country. What I say is that you can't talk about American history without talking about African-American history. And one of the things that's important is that for scholars, we focus on evidence. The kind of things I write about in the book are true regardless of who's in the White House or which party is in power. It's true whether it's President Biden or President Trump or Obama, whoever's in the White House in the future. These aren't just arguments that people are shouting at each other on, on cable news. These are, um, these are factual stories that are based in years of research and years of, of evidence that's been gathered. I think for us today, it's important to reckon honestly with the history of our nation, to reckon honestly with both the good and bad parts of it. If we can't do that, we have really no chance to understand how we got to where we are today as a country or how we might navigate the future. The book is Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. The author is Matthew Delmont. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And that is the News Hour for tonight. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Navaz. On behalf of the entire News Hour team, thank you for joining us.